Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 21, Great Saint, Wannabe Monk, and Peer Pressurer Extraordinaire. Who is Basil the Great? There are few saints who loom larger in church history than the man known as Basil the Great. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, he is honored as one of the three holy hierarchs, men who played a special role in the formation of the church due to their deft ecclesiastical leadership. His sermons on social justice and Christian ethics continue to be required reading in seminaries throughout the world today. Basil was also instrumental in the development of monasticism, and is in fact responsible for a very influential set of rules for organizing monastic life. And in his native Greek tongue, Basil goes by the name Megas Vasileos, which literally means Mega Basil. It makes him sound like a supersized version of himself, like one of those Power Rangers zords. And he is widely known. I was traveling in Athens earlier this year, and I was at an icon shop with a woman who didn't know much English. I asked if she had any icons of Basil the Great, and she responded with confusion. She had no idea who I was talking about. Then I tentatively tried the Greek name, Megas Vasileos, and she immediately lit up and pointed me towards a beautiful set of icons of Basil. Yes, Megas Vasileos has left a long and rich legacy for church nerds everywhere. But who is this golden child of the ecclesiarchy, this silver-tongued master of monks and meritocrats alike, this inspirer of eponymous mouse detectives? Who is Basil the Great? Well, Basil was born sometime around the year 330 in the Roman province of Pontus, just on the north end by the Black Sea. Those of you with good memories may remember that this was also the home region of the arch-heretic Marcion, and Tertullian had savaged Marcion by saying that the only thing worse than Pontus was the fact that Marcion was born there. But Basil was no Marcion, and in fact his family was a powerhouse of Christian superstars. His younger brother Gregory would go on to be a world-class theologian in his own right. His sister Macrina was a celebrated ascetic and teacher, Gregory would attribute his and Basil's education largely to her influence. Their parents were both devout Christians, a trait that had apparently gone back several generations up the family tree. During the Great Persecution, Basil's family had actually used Pontus's less-than-desirable climate to their advantage. Despite their substantial means, they withdrew from their city dwellings to the desert and lived as hunter-gatherers to escape the persecution. The plan worked and once the Great Persecution ended, the family resumed its prominent position in the community. By the time Basil came along, several decades had passed since that, but his family's unwavering commitment to the faith had not. Basil's family was also deeply committed to education. As Basil began to show his prodigious talents, his family sent him to Athens to study with the finest minds of the age there. While at Athens, Basil was to meet the infamous Emperor Julian, also studying at the time, but also one of his best friends named Gregory like his brother. He would go on to be known as Gregory of Nazianzus. 
That's really the curse of this Nicene story. We've just escaped the era of too many Eusebii, and we have already entered the era of too many Gregories. Basil learned rapidly and well at Athens, but he found himself dissatisfied by the climate there. For a center of learning, the school at Athens could be pretty dang violent. Contemporary sources tell us that gangs of students would attach themselves to one particular teacher. They would then aggressively recruit new students to study exclusively with their teacher, using violence to coerce them into it. Kind of like a late ancient version of West Side Story, if the Sharks and the Jets had been fighting about who you should take English lit with. Basil was not impressed by this setup, and he increasingly questioned the point of secular learning that was not linked to religious piety. Now, that doesn't mean Basil became an aggressive know-nothing. On the contrary, he puts his wide secular learning to use throughout his whole career. It meant, rather, that Basil didn't think it was enough to study the same way that non-Christians did, using the same methods as non-Christians did, with the same goals as non-Christians had, and then just slap the label Christian on it at the end because, well, you happen to be one. You see, Christians have different goals than non-Christians do, so Christian education has to change a bit to match those new goals. So take the art of preaching. A Christian can and should learn the rules of classical rhetoric. After all, being a good public speaker will help you preach a good sermon. But you can't stop there. For Basil, the goal of a sermon is to prompt imitation. When you preach about Jesus, you want people to walk away inspired to act more like Jesus did, to love Jesus better, to worship Jesus more. So Basil took that classical rhetorical style and adapted it so that it was more interactive than his teachers probably would have approved of. Was it the best technique for the Academy of Athens? No, but it was the best technique for Basil's Christian aims. This kind of creative reworking of sources was probably Basil's unique genius. His younger brother Gregory was the more doctrinally creative. His best friend Gregory made a more enduring mark on the literary scene. But Basil, I think, had the clearest and most compelling account of what a Christian cleric should be in his time and place. There's an old joke that's told about the three Cappadocians. Some of you may have heard it which is that Basil was the only one of them who actually wanted to be ordained, even though all three became bishops. Now, there is a good bit of truth in that, and we'll be talking about it more later, but for now, just know that Basil was set on a career in the church from pretty early on, which is part of why he had such a compelling vision of it. Basil was, of course, fascinated by monasticism, frequently writing letters of advice to monks and providing rulings on various questions but his heart was set on the priesthood from age 26 onward. You see, after his formal education in Athens, Basil spent about a year practicing law and rhetoric before falling in with Eustathius of Sebaste, a charismatic bishop. Now, while Eustathius wasn't a monk, he adopted many of the same ascetic practices that monks did. Basil was so impressed by the man that he decided to forsake his legal practice altogether and henceforth serve only God's aims. Or in his own words, and I quote, I had wasted much time on follies and spent nearly all of my youth in vain labors and devotion to the teachings of a wisdom that God had made foolish. Suddenly I awoke as out of a deep sleep. I beheld the wonderful light of the gospel truth and I recognize the nothingness of the wisdom of the princes of this world. 
end quote. There is something a bit charming about a man lamenting the many lost years of his life at the ripe old age of 26 when he has been out of school for literally a year. We're talking about literally a year and change that Basil considers lost. But his strong reaction to this conversion is simply the sign of the strength of his conviction, because Basil would go on to become a priest and then a bishop in the important metropolis of Caesarea, and he would do great things with it. Basil took upon all of the power and influence that the office of bishop had come to hold over his lifetime, and he presented a model of effective governance and ministry that impresses even these many centuries later. So what did Basil think the church should be, and what did he do as a bishop to make that happen? Well, the first thing you need to know is that Basil was not shy about wielding his political power. You may remember that Constantine had given limited judicial powers to bishops. That meant Basil was regularly involved at the courthouse, often making decisions about whether criminals should be handed over to secular courts or given more lenient treatment by the church. We have many of the letters he wrote to powerful people pleading for mercy for a given criminal. Now, this was a pretty common practice in the world of late antiquity. Powerful people negotiated with each other through a complex network of favors and implicit exchanges. Basil knew this system inside and out, and he had absolutely no qualms about making use of it if he could obtain mercy for a defendant, relief for a widow, or some other gospel aim. It was precisely Basil's comfort with power that allowed him to accomplish one of his most impressive goals. He managed to build a structure outside the gates of Caesarea that was a combination of a poorhouse, a hospital, and a hospice facility. This was a truly impressive achievement in antiquity. These sorts of institutions simply didn't exist before Christian bishops like Basil conceived of them. Because of Basil, thousands of people were cared for in the worst moments of their lives. And for some of those people, it wasn't just because Basil built the building. We have authors who recount Basil going into the sick and dressing their wounds personally. However, Basil's greatest gift to the poor was also his greatest curse on church history podcasters, because the name of this structure was the... Okay, g- give me a second here. The Pophoruptation. The, the, the Procoptalion. The Pterodactylion? The... Patochotrophaeon. Whew! It later came to be known in his honor as the Basileid, which is what I'm going to be calling it, so I never have to say that mangled cacophony of consonants ever again. Part of using your power well, and also part of fundraising, is knowing when people need to be called out for their misbehavior. And Basil had no qualms about doing just that. He gave several sermons excoriating the rich for their lack of generosity in the face of the famines that gripped his city. We'll be reviewing one of those sermons in a supplemental episode, in fact. But his most famous confrontation was with the Emperor Valens. Valens was not a big fan of Basil, in large part because Basil kept opposing the Homoian theological compromise positions that Valens was trying to strong-arm the church into accepting. 
So Valen sent a high-ranking official to see if he couldn't strong-arm Basil into compliance, too. The official walked up to Basil and made it very clear that the Emperor really needed these formulas to be accepted, and wouldn't it be an awful shame if someone made the mistake of opposing them? I mean, we wouldn't want to get on the Emperor's bad side, now would we? To which, Basil replied by telling this high-ranking official exactly where he could shove his veiled threats. This official, shocked at Basil's boldness, muttered that no one had ever spoken to him in that way before. Basil replied, Perhaps you have never spoken with a bishop before. At which point, all of Basil's homies emerged from the cathedral with shouts of, Oh! as they surrounded their friend and told the whole church about his sick burns that had ended this man's whole career. Or at least, that's the vibe. Of course, spitting hot tracks and judicious disses is only half of wielding your power. The other half is knowing when to compromise. And Basil was actually quite good at this as well. In fact, he was pretty good at this partly because his own theology had evolved. During the early part of his career, Basil was actually allied with the moderate Homoousian party, preferring to describe the son as of similar substance to the father rather than of the same substance like the Homoousians. That's right, one of the greatest champions of Nicaea was originally not a fan of its key phrase Homoousius. But this also goes to show just how broad theological schools could be. There were some Homoousians who were quite skeptical of Nicaea, really didn't like it at all. There were others like Basil who saw themselves as generally upholding Nicaea, but thought that its insights could have been expressed more clearly than they were in the creed. In fact, early in his career, Basil indicates that his preferred phrase is not Homoousius of the same substance, but rather invariably like according to substance. His worry about homoousius was that, you guessed it, it carried connotations of modalism. If we said that the father and son were the same substance, Basil thought that could be interpreted as them being the very same thing. Or even worse, it could be interpreted as polytheism, as if the father and son were two separate, equally divine beings who could come into conflict with each other. To say that they were invariably like would imply that there was no inequality in their divinity, but that they also weren't the same thing. Of course, Basil's allegiances changed over time. He resolved his difficulties with Homoousian language by making a careful differentiation between the substance of divinity and the differentiating characteristics of each person. He could then happily call the substances the same, while also having a way of maintaining the appropriate differences between persons. But even then, he was never particularly insistent that one singular phrase like Homoousius had to win out. Basil would often make alliances with other factions who agreed with him in intent and meaning, even if their preferred language differed. You are by now seeing that Basil was a man of many gifts. He was an excellent administrator, a compelling and charismatic leader, and even a spitter of fire and snark when needed. But none of those were Basil's greatest gift. His greatest gift was peer pressure. You see, Basil believed the church was still under threat from the menace of heresy. Near his own region, he observed heretical bishops being consecrated left and right, and the pro-heretical stance of the Emperor Valens didn't help matters at all. Now, for Basil, this was a big deal. 
it was a big deal not just because he didn't like to see other people be wrong about things. It was a big deal because heresy destroyed the foundational purpose in the church. Over and over again in his letters and writings, Basil complains that public worship has been disrupted, perhaps irreparably, by heretical teachings. The pious have left the churches to worship in open fields, where they don't have to hear terrible preaching, and the uneducated are left to be taught by heretics who have corrupted the faith, which of course means that the worship they will offer is going to be faulty. The goal of church is to praise God. When you speak of God in ways that aren't true, it becomes awfully difficult to offer meaningful praise. But Basil had a solution to this. It wasn't Athanasius's solution, which was mostly to get exiled a bunch and write a bunch of books about how his opponents were all wrong. It wasn't an emperor's solution of just exiling everybody he disagreed with. No, Basil's solution was to get all of his best friends to become bishops as well, so they could advance the cause of orthodoxy together. Teamwork makes the dream work. Did his friends want to be bishops? Not particularly. Were they successful bishops? That's debatable. But they were loyal to Basil and would be stalwart defenders of Nicaea, so into the Episcopal ranks they went. Come on, you guys, he said. It'll be fun, he said. We'll get to hang out at all the councils together and vent about all the frustrations of running a diocese together, and we'll even get to advance the cause of orthodoxy together. Seriously, reading a biography of Basil of Caesarea is like reading a who's who list of all the luminaries in the 4th century. He counted Evagrius of Pontus as an ally and was deeply involved with Peter of Alexandria, Athanasius's successor. But most famously, Basil installed the two other Cappadocian fathers in their bishoprics. His younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa, became a bishop of, you guessed it, Nyssa. His best friend, Gregory of Nazianzus, was ordained bishop of a little town called Sosima. This actually caused a fair bit of strain between Gregory and Basil. You see, all three of the Cappadocians had toyed with the idea of being monks. But Gregory of Nazianzus really wanted to be a monk. He didn't want to be a bishop. Bishops had to spend their days arguing with people and managing church finances. That sounded boring. Gregory didn't want to do that. He wanted to sit in his little cell and pray his little prayers and do his little practices of self-denial in peace. Basil knew this. But Basil also believed that their moment in history called for them to take up leadership in the church. So Basil leaned heavily on Gregory's father, who happened himself to be an influential bishop, to persuade his son to take up the post. Between Basil and his father, Gregory felt like he had no choice but to accept. And he hated every second of it. He wrote to friends complaining about how much he hated the town and hated the work. And he held Basil responsible for getting him stuck into it all. And he told Basil this. For his part, Basil held his ground and accused Gregory of weakness, of failing to shoulder the demands of leadership that history placed on him. They would eventually reconcile, but it would take a long time, and the wound never fully healed. This story of a falling out between two great saints is important for many reasons, but perhaps none so much as that it shows one of Basil's rare character flaws. He was stubborn, and often ready to sacrifice personal relationships when he thought a grander design was in play. 
Perhaps only a man like that could so readily organize a fractured church, but it sure didn't help his friendships blossom. What, if anything, can explain this coldness from Basil? Well, I, I don't know if anything can. It may just be a quirk of his character. But I have a hunch that it has something to do with Basil's particular kind of asceticism. Although Basil left the monastic life behind after only a brief flirtation, the themes of monastic spirituality pervaded his whole life. None was more central to his ethos than asceticism. Now, if you aren't familiar with that term, it comes from the Greek word ascesis, which referred to athletic training prior to a competition. When you were in the weight room or on the field running sprints, that was ascesis. That was getting you ready for the game. Now, in a Christian context, asceticism involved training the body and the soul to resist the temptations of sin. And monks in particular were known for their ascetical tendencies. All those habits of fasting and vigils and voluntary poverty were ways of training their souls to focus on God rather than on the material world. And it was that self-denial that supposedly gave the monks their unique connection with God. It was asceticism that purged the soul of harmful emotions and left behind a peaceful contentment and unity with the divine. Now, Basil repeatedly stresses the importance of ascetic self-denial in his letters and sermons. It lies at the heart of what his idea of a Christian church and of what a Christian city should be. Because after all, ultimately a Christian community is one full of people whose hearts are turned toward their heavenly abode. And how do we turn our hearts to heaven? By ascetic practices, by self-control and spiritual discipline. These things lay at the heart of Basil's vision of community. But I think Basil took asceticism in a different direction than some of the people we have studied, and perhaps even in a different direction than Gregory of Nazianzus. If asceticism was about self-denial and humbly doing what was right rather than what was easy, what could be more ascetical than leaving behind the peaceful solitude of contemplation for the sorrows and troubles of an active life of ministry among God's people? In this light, Basil probably did think that Gregory of Nazianzus was weak to run away from the calling. It didn't matter that he didn't feel equipped. It didn't matter that he didn't want it. What mattered was that he had the skills to do the job, and so by all rights, he should suck it up and do it. Basil's philosophy is a harsh one, but it is at least consistent with itself, if I've got him right on this. Interestingly enough, there's one other major player in the 4th century that never quite trusted Basil, and that was Athanasius of Alexandria, himself no secret to monastic life, although Athanasius's monks tended to be a little bit more eremitical than Basil's very social orders. Perhaps that difference of philosophy undergirded some of the tensions between them. Perhaps Athanasius was a little bit suspicious of Basil's original homoiousian leanings. For whatever reason, Athanasius never quite came around to Basil's program. In that way, Basil had a taste of his own medicine of self-denial, and he would have plenty of other experiences to get a dose of his own medicine as well. His ecclesiastical career was fraught with peril and intrigue. Honestly, we could probably do a whole podcast just on the turbulent nature of the shifting alliances and enemies that Basil forged. In fact, a big portion of Basil's career was spent defending himself from charges of heresy. For one of the allies Basil made was one Apollinaris of Laodicea. 
Now, Apollinaris was extremely in favor of the sun's full divinity, which made him a natural ally. The problem was that Apollinaris was so anxious to prove that Jesus was fully God that he made him less than fully human. Apollinaris taught that Christ had no human soul or mind. He was actually little more than a fleshy body controlled by the Logos, almost like a video game character you control with a joystick. This position would be roundly condemned by most of the church, and the anxiety to refute it would factor heavily in the next round of heretical controversies leading up to the Council of Chalcedon. But this isn't the road to Chalcedon, this is the road to Nicaea. So for now, all you need to know is that from the very beginning, most people thought Apollinaris' vibes were absolutely rancid. Basil made the mistake of befriending Apollinaris before checking his vibes, and was thereafter plagued with accusations that he was a secret Apollinarian. Basil was also regularly thrust into political dramas that caused him significant heartburn. Most famous of these came from none other than the Emperor Valens. You will recall that Basil had earlier thrown out a hot diss track against the Emperor's messenger. Valens then came to see Basil sometime after that. Basil, and probably everybody else, fully expected that he was about to get kicked out of his bishopric for his forthrightness with an imperial messenger. But instead, Valens told Basil that he had a job for him. Basil was supposed to stabilize the Christian church in the kingdom of Armenia. This was the sort of job that you give to someone whose failure you wouldn't mind seeing. Armenia was a political powder keg at this point in history, because it was in the unfortunate position of being right smack dab in the middle of Rome and Persia. After Julian died in his foolhardy charge, the Persians marched right on into the kingdom of Armenia and took up residence. That meant that the Christian bishop at the time got exiled, and he was sympathetic to Rome. By the time Valens came knocking, Roman armies were just beginning to make inroads into Armenia to contend with Persia's armies. Basil's job was to arrive and organize the churches as the army marched and Christianity became possible again. How did Basil do? Eh. I mean, he wasn't bad. His biggest problem was that he was assigned a partner named Theodotus, who was apparently so confrontational and spiteful that Basil had to turn around and go home early. In the approximately three months he had to do the work, Basil put down some rules for the Armenian bishops, settled some of their disputes, and got a few important Episcopal appointments knocked out. Not bad, but also far short of what was expected of him, and perhaps what Basil expected of himself. Armenian affairs would continue to weigh on him for most of his career, as would the affairs of his own church in Caesarea, and of the world church that he cared so much for. In addition to the stresses of church governance, Basil also dealt with poor health throughout his life. He would die before he turned 50 of what was probably liver disease. Several times he had to take extended sick leave in order to recover from bouts of ill health. We know that this affected Basil deeply. In one of his letters he complains to a friend that by reason of his infirmities, he is like a plant, stuck in one place, when he would rather be out traveling the world, doing the work he wanted to do. And Basil's mental outlook was also disturbed by the power that his heretical opponents appeared to wield. In fact, Basil frequently writes to Western bishops pleading for their interventions in the East. The West, he says, is full of godly pro-Nicene doctrine, while the East is a hotbed of Arian foolishness. 
These letters, by the way, are partly where modern scholars have gotten the incorrect notion that the West was always behind Nicaea, by the way. But that's not what the letters say. Basil is not saying it has been this way all the time, only that it was this way at the time of writing. And even then, he may be exaggerating in order to do a bit of a captatio benevolentiae on his Western friends, get their goodwill by buttering them up. Whatever Basil's rhetorical aims, though, it was clear that the situation looked pretty grim at times. But even at his grimmest, Basil never abandoned his vision of the church as a unified body, proclaiming the triune God perfect in majesty. He never ceased encouraging others to spiritual disciplines and care for the poor, and he led his flock from the front on both counts. And he wrote... He wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote about God, about Christians' duties to each other, and about his intense and convoluted friendships. Now that we have a feel for the man himself, it's time to turn towards those writings to see what they had to contribute to the nascent theology of the Cappadocians, a theology that he did more than anyone else to drag across the final mile of the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com. Uh-huh.